This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Zhang. Coming up, subversity with Dan Zhang. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Subversely, today, uh, on this special uh, Veterans Day edition, we will be looking at a veteran of a different war or struggle, the struggles for peace in this country and for justice, environmental, political, and other types of justice struggles. Uh, This has been a great week, a really important week. The sheriff has, uh, has been indicted, uh, the undersheriff uh, has taken over. Uh, Corona, Michael Corona's uh, hand-picked uh, person has been picked uh, to run the department. She was the PR person to defend him before. And so there's a critical essay in this week's OC Weekly about the undersheriff uh, that has been uh, in ch- put in charge of the um, sheriff's department, an important department that... Uh, actually runs the county jails systems. And so for those of us who are interested in prisoners' rights, this is a an important development that the sheriff is now under indictment, uh, imagine, and yet his hand-picked uh, deputy has been put in charge at this point. So what does this bode for Orange County? We've also uh, heard this week that... Uh, just happened that uh, Norman Mailer, the giant in the literary scene, has died. And today we'll be uh, talking, uh, airing an interview with another literary giant, Mike Davis, who this week won, on Thursday, won the Lanan Literary Award for nonfiction. Uh, really a big prize, $150,000. Uh, on top of a MacArthur Award he won some time ago, that was um, a half a million dollars. Of course, Mike Davis is the urban critic, uh, urban studies critic and um, cultural critic, and he's a professor at UC Irvine. And we'll be uh, airing an interview we did with him uh, right after a talk he gave on the wildfires in California. And that he had called... Uh, Katrina in the suburbs. Uh, when we caught up with him after the talk, we asked him what was the um, what was his uh, what was his view on the great park in Irvine, and what does that say about development in Orange County, uh, the role of developers, big money developers in Orange County, and so. Let's go to that interview right now, and later on we'll be airing, after our interview, we'll we'll be airing his uh, talk at the the, uh, UCI when he talked uh, on October 31st about the uh, Katrina in the suburbs, the wildfires in Southern California, the politics of that. Uh, so first, uh, this is uh, an interview we did with him before it was announced that he won the Lanan Literary Award last Thursday.
And uh, so let's go to that. I mean, what do you think of the idea of this great park? Well, the great park is part of a larger issue, yeah. which is the fate of all the closed military bases and military land in, in California. You know, F. Scott Fitzgerald once said, you know, there are no second acts in American lives. Mm-hmm. And that's usually true in American cities. But in fact, base closure has suddenly given us these absolutely invaluable pieces of centrally located land or, yeah. or you know, large, large bases, which could have been a one way to solve the affordable housing question and, to, and homelessness in California. But except in the case of the Presidio, mm. in each case, the land has basically either been directly given away to developers like the Naval Training Center in San Diego, which was sold for a dollar an acre, some wow. of the most valuable land in the country, huh. uh, Ford Ord, which is largely becoming just more sprawl. But the great part solves uh, one of the problems of the whole incredible master plan for Irvine, which is a shortage of park space. So instead of the Irvine Company having to take some of its uh, priceless land to provide adequate amenities, you can convert part of it and at the same time uh, build more housing. But the larger question here isn't just the great park, but how is it that the biggest developers in, in California have ended up with this public legacy of military land, uh, land that you know sh- should have been used to deal with our acute housing problems, right. uh, you know, with homelessness, with creating low-cost housing, usable public space for all groups in society. Right. I mean, I think it's there. There have been two opportunities in the last 30 years to really begin to solve some of the housing problem in America. One was the savings and loan mm. meltdown yeah. in which the federal government temporarily ended up owning a million units of housing, which instead of keeping in the public realm and using to provide affordable housing to people, it sold off uh, at rock-bottom rates to... You going this way? Yeah. You know, to uh, private developers across the country, and then again the opportunities that that base closure have, yeah. have provided. And then the other, you said two. Which way are we going? <laughs> Where you headed? Uh, uh, towards the know. library. Uh, but I need to go back to the history building. Am I going the right way? I don't even know where I am. I know. I kind of not sure where. I should go up back up. I think. I think I need to go that yeah. way. We should go back up to the road. And then the second thing, you said the two... No, I mean the two were the savings and loan crisis and and base closure. Uh, One created a huge public inventory of housing units, which were just discounted uh, to the private sector. And the other is base closure, which freed up some of the most valuable uh, centrally located land or beautiful coastal land in California, and with the exception of the Presidio, it's all just been, been given over. away. Yeah. And some of these cases, like the Naval Training Center in San Diego, are are nothing less than uh, you know, you know, outright, you know, uh, 
you know, robbery. I mean, political treachery that has yet to, you know, command a grand jury investigation or, you know, yeah. any of the kind of investigation it, it, it deserves. It's all been turned into a luxury housing, uh, you know, uh, townhouses. Condos and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't even used to deal with the problem of housing for military families in San Diego who are essentially priced out of yeah. the market who can barely afford you know, to, to live near their bases. So are you, are you going to stay um, here at UCI? What did you decide? Well, I'm waiting to hear from the chancellor who uh. I sent a nasty note to and insulted about the law school affair. Uh, whether he's going to let me go down to one-third time, in which I just teach here during the spring. I just teach two large lecture classes, and that would be it. Because it's, um, it's getting very difficult. Yeah, long commute, huh? To, yeah, it's a very long commute, and it's even more complicated babysitting. Um, oh, yeah. Because yeah. I'm trying to be the stay-at-home parent with my sure. two toddlers. Sure, yeah. Wow. I'll be, I hope you stay connected. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll but, see. It may yeah. be that the chancellor refuses to let me go to uh, uh, a one-third appointment. Thing. Oh, because it's uh, at his level. It's, uh, it's a distinguished professor. It's, I'm, not a, dis- I'm not a distinguished uh, uh, a professor. I mean, I am a uh, professor, but... Oh. And the, the, you know, the chair of the department... You know, fully supports this because sure. it might free up some resources. Right. right. But we'll see. Right. I, I've been waiting since August huh. uh, to get a response. What do you think happened with the chancellor and the law school dean case? Was that was that definitely politics? Right? Well, I mean, I think Trimanski sold everybody out by preventing a real investigation, yeah. and it's very clearly the chancellor blatantly and stupidly lied to us uh, about what happened. Sure. I mean, we know from, like, the LA Times that Mike Antonovich, you know, was involved in putting pressure on him. And the and Chief Justice of the uh, State Supreme Court. And it's almost impossible to believe that the campus's, you know, own leading philanthropist, uh, and Republican warlord didn't have a role in this. So, I mean, what's happened? And I think it's partially due to Chermaninsky himself. Uh, you know, we've abandoned the issue. And the, and the most vital thing, far more important in my mind than who's actually head of the law school, the <laughs> since the only people who'll be able to afford now these yeah. huge increases in 40, what, 40, fees for, yeah, yeah. for professional things, you know, will be... Yeah. You know, will be kids yeah. with uh, trust anyway. I mean, the, the, the really deeper issue is the secret government and the invisible government of this university. You know, the handful of people that can twist uh, a chancellor's arm, the secrecy in which it's enshrouded, and the kind of, you know, contempt of a chancellor, however, whatever nice fellow he might be in other ways. Right, right. Who would... Uh, you know, just blatantly lie in our, our faces when everybody knew better. And the academic senate, of course, though there was some opposition, as always, just took this lying down. They're, 
they're too overpaid to really yeah. be capable of, you know, of mounting Feeding. an opposition. So the matter appears to, you know, have ended and be, for, you know, be forgotten. But the, I mean, the real issue here is this, this question of the secret government of rich philanthropists, the Irvine Company. Ranch Company, the Republicans who only have to, wealthy Republicans who only have to say boo, mm-hmm. and the administration on this campus falls in place. The law school issue also isn't half as important as what's happening to, you know, graduate students here. You know, we have less money for TAs. Mm-hmm. They're now fixed the undergraduate enrollment. All the new enrollment apparently is going to be in professional schools hmm. and graduate schools. And what that means is the chance of ensuring any kind of greater diversity on campus that working class kids from Central and North and Orange County, you know, more Latinos and African Americans, chances of them coming to this school now have been kind of frozen. The demographics will stay as what they are. All the money goes to building you know, pharaonic hmm. business schools named after, uh, you know, yeah. Bren. Yeah. And more and more, the University of California system as a whole is being privatized and yeah. its dependence on, you know, on fees, which most people can't afford, and, you know, on the private sector. But that's probably as it should be since major function of the university is to publicly produce knowledge which is then turned to private profit in our for corporate sur- use yeah. by our faculty entrepreneurs and the yeah. you know yeah for sure I mean yeah. I think the University of California is just obviously betrayed in the most fundamental way uh, you know it's trust I just went to uh, I attended a meeting at Michigan and I was shocked to find out that you of Michigan only 20% of the funding comes from public sources Yes. It's essentially been privatized. Yes, it's happened. It's happened all over the, over the country, and d- despite despite the claims of uh, administrators and chancellors, you know those those who give the money really do acquire veto powers. They acquire immense power to to shape the character of the campuses, to shape the nature of. Of, of resource, research, yeah. you know, research on campus, yeah. and university is just huge R and D facility for uh, <laughs> the high tech industries. Yeah, I thought in they California. couldn't. I thought they couldn't have re, uh, secret research on campus, but they can have corporate research, which puts a, you know, put a puts an embargo on release of data, you know, for for corporate use first, and then you can release it. And all so, this, of course, encouraged, I mean, the, you know, we're constantly the faculty gets email messages encouraging us to become entrepreneurs, all right, right. attend res- uh, workshops and, uh, you know, how to create new products and, <laughs> and, you know, and profit centers. There, of course, still is an immense amount of uh, stealth research going on. Uh, I mean, Berkeley's Livermore Lab is the most famous. But for instance, UCSD All right. Engineering School uh, is fighting to climb on the top of the, of the pile and uh, yeah. research on surveillance technologies, right, right. Uh, border uh, surveillance and control. In other words, the whole kind of Orwellian, brave new, uh, an right. Orwellian world. Uh, I think you're old school. 
it's being built, at least technologically, by research at, uh, at UC campuses. I mean, UCSG is surrounded by really what is either the, or the first or second largest homeland defense complex uh-huh. you know, in the United States, science applications, international... Even the, the place where you gave the talk. The last time I was there, they had a robot that was a part of the funding for Homeland Security that was crawling around the ground. It was a robot that was going to you know, surveil certain areas uh, without human intervention, you know, humans being there. I was just walking around the lobby there. I must say that I have been encouraged on the past couple of weeks. Bob Muller, who's taken uh-huh. over as chair of uh, you know, the history, history department, actually circulating things like George Sanchez wrote a very eloquent article about almost total absence of any kind of affirmative action huh. in, in history as a, uh, you know, a, a profession. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, maybe our department, you know, will finally take a stand on this. But, you know, most department meetings, and this is probably true in all the departments, yeah. you know, all have to do when they're not just, you know, brag fest, everybody patting each other on the back right, and right. passing each other's uh, promotion. All they have to do with is, is fighting over, you know, our s- slice of the pie. Yeah, and the crumbs. <laughs> you know, and fighting other departments for right. FTEs and resources. Yeah, yeah. And they don't discuss, you know, the, the bigger campus-wider system-wide issues. The Academic Senate does, but the Academic Senate is just the, the aristocracy. Oh, they caved in. I, I was there when Drake came and apologized for not consulting them. So they all clapped and uh, basically kissed up. No, I mean, the whole idea that there... Do you want to go there? Is any real democracy within, <laughs> within the UC system or any real representative government? Well, the, the, it's, the it's masses couldn't even... Joke. Only the people sitting in the front row had all those uh, little gadgets to vote. The other people couldn't vote. Actually, it's a representative assembly. No, I, I, uh, <laughs> I conscientiously object. I wouldn't go to a meeting or, yeah. or ever serve in the, I was in the Senate because I think it, it should be abolished. And, I mean, even, even my high school in 1964 had oh, a yeah. student government uh, that was more prepared to, you know, to talk about real issues than UC yeah. campus. I mean, the quiet, quietism of this campus I know. Yeah. is really uh, you know, disturbing. I mean, people just walk through a dream here on their way to high-paid you know, biotech and, yeah. you know, and science jobs. And yeah. we just fundamentally fail to debate right. you know, or discuss the important issues. And meanwhile, there's this you know, executive committee of developers and you know, yeah. philanthropists uh, you know, who pulled the strings of the Chancellor Dance history. Yeah. Okay. I got a split. I'd love to yeah. see this. Okay. Pete Wilson thing. Yeah. Uh, that was a reference to, uh, Pete, uh, to um, a cartoon on Pete Wilson, and he's written an um, article uh, called Calling Pete Wilson the True Arsonist uh, for Allowing Developers uh, or Development to Go Rampant in San Diego. Um, area where he lives. Uh, that was m- our interview with Mike Davis, caught uh, by our roving reporter here, yours truly, uh, as he left a uh, talk he gave on October 31st. Mike Davis, the historian at UCI, who this week won the Lanan Prize worth 150000 for her, his body of work, a uh, prolific body of work uh, of nonfiction. And um, we're going to be airing his talk uh, momentarily um, 
that he gave at this uh, at the session uh, on October 31st at UC Irvine uh, called the Katrina um, the Katrina in the suburbs the politics of wildfires in Southern California and that was a change from an earlier topic that he wanted to talk about because of the fires in the Southland. Uh, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. You're listening to Subversity here on KUCI with Dan Sang. Uh, we now air the talk by Mike Davis uh, on Katrina in the suburbs. I originally planned to talk about the Western and Mexican drought of 1998 to 2003, which coincided with the structural transformation of Mexican agriculture. Uh, the two things combined had kind of devastating impact on small farmers in northern Mexico, left dozens, perhaps hundreds of towns, virtually ghost towns, as people immigrated to the United States. But obviously, uh, a more immediate uh, and tragic topic has arisen. <clears throat> You'll forgive me if I sound a little incoherent, I didn't sleep last night. I've been trying to meet deadlines, writing various articles about it. But I want to tell you about what I did uh, last Friday. Last Friday, which I think was day six of the Southern California fire complex, I helped a avocado rancher friend of mine named Tom Royden, a 69-year-old Englishman who has spent his lifetime working with peasant farmers and village cooperatives in East Africa and Latin America, uh, working with UNESCO, uh, has managed to acquire a whole lifetime of field experience in agriculture. He was got very sick, caught hepatitis in Ecuador, moved to the U.S. where he got a degree, and I think it's probably the only college in the country that offers such a degree, in avocados at Cal State Pomona. <coughs> Excuse me. And he and his wife, Cozy Amamia, together uh, with their foreman, Christian Mendez, who's from Guanajuato, have 140 acres of avocados on the west end of Ramona Valley, which I guess in, in my day was Highway 67, San Diego Bat Country, uh, the leading center of turkey raising in Southern California. Today, the Ramona Valley, which is about 35 miles from downtown San Diego, maybe 10 miles as the crow flies, 10 or 12 miles from the I-15, the heavily suburbanized I-15 corridor, is a complex mix mixture of very expensive trophy homes on mountains, fabricated home subdivisions for poor people, old-time rednecks like myself who've always lived there and grew up in eastern San Diego County, with the edge of Poway, once also a small rural place, but now uh, a sprawling affluent suburb slowly merging together. Uh, 67 now has, you'll see the Turkey Inn, where you can still get a decent boiler maker, uh, the hay store, but you'll also find three or four places that sell espresso 
to people commuting to uh, software labs, biotech uh, research parks just on the other side of the mountains. So you actually see around the Ramona Valley a clash not only of different kinds of land uses and ways of using the land, but in many ways an extremely heterogeneous uh, population which sometimes doesn't coexist. The avocado orchards are part of what has always been the United States' principal center for growing avocados. That is the northeastern part of San Diego County, from Ramona or even further south up to Fallbrook, still produces 80% of the avocados grown in the United States. Or actually, let me <coughs> revise that. Provides 80% of the avocados grown in California, which I, in turn supplies about 90% of the avocados in the United States. But the future of avocados in San Diego County may be bleak. And I choose this subject for talk for a, a reason that will become obvious in, in just a few moments. To get to Tom's Ranch, we were hauling irrigation pipe because the fire had burned out all the exposed irrigation, which is, of course, now made of plastic or aluminum, which melts. And desperate to save his trees, we were carrying up a lot of irrigation pipes and began refitting the irrigation system. <clears throat> and we drove up the Green Valley Truck Road. This is the old Spanish Trail. This is the route that Kit Carson, the General Stephen Kearney's American Gradoons down uh, 160 years ago to the San Pasqual Valley, where they were almost massacred by Andres Pico's Californio Lancers, probably the, amongst the finest light horsemen in the world. It was the major U.S. defeat during the war with Mexico. Any of you have a literary Ben and Reed Cormac McCarthy, this is also the trail that the satanic Judge Holden chased the surviving members of the Glanton Gang in 1852 or 53 to San Diego. A section of it remains almost unchanged, a, a literal time machine, uh, looking probably much like it did 160 years ago. The grass and brush, this is an oak savanna, uh, the grass and brush, of course, reduced to ash. The oaks, a little blackened, but of course oaks have an almost erotic need for fire in order to reproduce. A year from now, two years from now, you won't even know that the Witch Creek fire, which started east of Ramona, largest of this complex and most destructive of this complex of 15 fires in Southern California, a couple of years from now you won't even know that the Witch Creek fire burnt through uh, the valley, through this oak savanna, just on the other side of Lake Ramona. Miraculously, or perhaps not, because it's made largely of stone, the oldest house in Ramona Valley, which sits there by itself amongst the oaks, also survived, even without apparent smoke damage. As we went up the old Spanish trail, the truck run, we encountered very, very fatigued, I mean really utterly wiped out, fire crew from Novato in the Bay Area. 
and stopped and chatted with them for a while, and I talked to them about how long it took to come down, and I asked them how they, they felt about it. And one of them joked, he said, ah, oh, we're used to it, it's our regular commute. I didn't think anything more about that till a few days later. I was looking up, doing some research on the Cedar Fire, which was the big San Diego fire in 2003 that consumed 2,200 homes and burnt along the same axis, just on the other side, just south of the Ramona Valley. And I was looking at the fire fatality list, and the firemen killed in this fire happened to be one of the fire crew from Novato, uh, which I found... I found moving. I mean, they have really paid their dues in, in Southern California. After about 10 or 15 minutes, we had to switch into four-wheel drive, and we came to Lake Ramona. Lake Ramona is kind of interesting because there is a, a creek, the Santa Maria Creek that flows through Ramona. In fact, Ramona is more properly the Santa Maria Valley. And I'd always thought Lake Ramona <coughs> stored water from the Santa Maria Creek and the other local creeks. Of course it doesn't. It stores water that's pumped all the way from the Colorado River, MWD water, and pumped up an incredibly steep hill. The fire had burned out the generators, and the inhabitants of Ramona Valley were utterly without water. Lake Ramona is about 80% full, but in anticipation of major disasters yet to come, it has to store now, as do all the reservoirs in Southern California, all the MWD reservoirs, six months' supply of water in the contingency that a great earthquake on either the southern San Andreas or its sister fault, the San Jacinto, would knock out the MWD aqueduct, which is, I'm sure some of you know, goes right through the massif of, of, of San Jacinto. So all of Ramona Valley was, was out of water. Uh, let me put a sidebar here. Later we went to get water. An usually efficient operation. Drive through the, apparently the Boy Scouts and local people in, in, in Ramona had organized it right at the Ramona's uh, city park. And you didn't even have to stop. You just drove through and you got eight gallons of water put in the back of your truck, and that was it. The park lays right next to uh, the now dry bed of the Santa Maria Creek. And we stopped for a minute to look around and find the remains of what homeless people call hooches, because many of them are Vietnam veterans, and that's what they call the huts of Vietnamese peasants. And this is uh, the homeless community in Ramona. They were totally burnt out in 2003, once again burn out. Where are they? Who are they? Are any dead? Uh, nobody knows. Nor could I find out any information about the Mesa Grande, Grande Indians who live up here in the most spectacularly wild, deep canyon in San Diego County, Black Canyon. Their homes are in the very, very bottom of this canyon, uh, a very dramatic, scary dirt road in and out. It's unclear where they were, where they assumed they were evacuated in time. I, nobody knew whether their settlement had been burnt out, though it, it shows this area as being burned on the fire maps. So anyway, back to Lake Ramona, come across the dam where local agricultural workers evacuated 
during the first part of the witch creek fire as it swept over. This is actually a passive that descends very dramatically to another reservoir in the San Pasqual Valley. Farm workers park trucks on the dam and then, when necessary, hit under the trucks with the farm dogs, the ranch dogs, for two days until they were finally able to get out. Some of these farm workers, including the son of Christian Mendez, the foreman for my friend Tom Royden, <clears throat> then walked back across the still-smoking mountains. And these are very steep mountains, crossed over the side of Starvation Peak at a time when everything was blockaded and nobody was being allowed back into Ramona to come back and first check on the state of the orchard, but secondly, see what happened to the ranch dogs. Dogs are an absolutely integral part of the ecology of, of citrus or avocado uh, ranching. And you'll hear many stories about, and, and even bogus press releases about immigrants. You won't read these kinds of stories. The people who stayed to defend farms, farm workers who are still working, when everybody uh, else was evacuating. But the real point of this, this whole tale is what happened to the mountain where Tom's orchard is. Avocado ranching has increasingly been driven up, to, up the sides of, of mountains. And remember, these mountains look like God had played dice with Stonehenge. Okay, just, you know, immense grand piles of, of, of granite boulders. I mean, they've been driven the sides of mountains as real estate values have soared in the, uh, the more accessible uh, flanks of the mountains and uh, the foothills because this area is the center of a huge push by subdivision development, also by isolated, very expensive homes. So avocado raising has retreated to some of the most inaccessible terrain. The 140 acres of avocado is surrounded by, there are a few more modest old-fashioned homes, but homes that range up to $5 million, $6 million. A lot of homes probably in the 800000 to a million and a half range because, and it's probably was breathtaking to the people who cross the old Spanish trail, you have ocean views from the tops of Mount Woodson, Starvation Mountain, up in the hills that lie in between. There was one extraordinary castellated mansion that had two enormous towers and was kind of either the scandal or the, the pride of the valley, depending on your attitude toward uh, such things. All that remained of it were twisted steel dirt girders. The house was so big, it was actually built with girders. Uh, not, not girders, but uh, twisted iron steel columns, uh, looking like a miniature version of 9-11. The putting lawn didn't front, uh, pristine. All that was left of the house. Other large houses survived. Most of them had the 100-foot brush clearance uh, that's slowly becoming obligatory for homeowners and such sites. This will contribute to the belief endorsed by the Daily Paper in San Diego, the Union Tribune, 
and by many officials that the real problem here is not where you build, it's how you build. And now we've hit on a kind of fail-safe, uh, you know, recipe for, uh, you know, fire survival. But I'll get back to that in a moment. A lot of other homes were burnt beside the castle. But what was most interesting was the fate of the avocados themselves. The whole crop, or at least 70% of it, had been lost, knocked down by the winds. The crown fire raced through the leaves. As you drove along the back roads, it's a pretty large ranch, uh, you left a trail, a deep, mushy trail of, of guacamole uh, everywhere you went. Uh, Chile had a terrible frost this year. Uh, San Diego avocado growers were really hoping uh, to have a good year. Tom expected to harvest about a million pounds of avocados on his ranch alone. Most of that's been lost, but the trees are alive. Except for maybe a 30-foot perimeter where the fire managed to, to kill a few of the trees. But Tom took a uh, pocket knife and scraped off the scorched bark. It was still green inside. Thus the urgency of restoring irrigation because the trees could be saved. It may be a few years before they bear fruit again. But orchards are completely cleared of, of debris. They're well irrigated and avocados are tough. And so they're fundamentally fire resistant. Although Tom told me, he's, I asked him about uh, citrus, about oranges. And he says, oh, those buggers are almost as tough as a, a, a live oak when it comes to burning. So though he suffered fairly devastating damage to his crop, the trees, like the ancient, some of them probably 200-year-olds along the old Spanish trail, survived. This immediately raised in my mind a, a point that's so obvious, but which is very, very rarely referenced or talked about in regard to the nature of these, these mass fires, these fire complexes that have burned so deep into the suburban fabric of the metropolis uh, over the last decade, which is simply this, that, that the obvious reason why the fires are capable of doing so much damage is because we have destroyed the enormous buffer zone, fire-resistant buffer zone of citrus, of avocado, of agriculture that once surrounded urbanized Southern California, the urbanized strip. In other words, between the, the true backcountry of, of you know, cattle, turkeys, chickens and just good old boys uh, and hell's angels, you know, living in, in, in little hamlets. Between that traditional backcountry and the urbanized or urbanizing coast, which is a, a deep zone of agricultural buffer, the same landscape that attracted people like my parents during the Great Depression to California. This was our, our beauty, our iconic landscape. Of course, it was totally artificial, and one part of me that belongs, the part of my soul that probably belongs to the Native Plant Society says, oh, it all should be pristine. Well, by the beginning of the 20th century, it wasn't. But it created a transition and a buffer zone between the city 
and in the, in the truly wild culture, uh, country, the natural vegetation, that made such fires as we've seen in Orange County, in San Diego, in the Santa Clarita Valley, virtually impossible because the orchards are clean, uh, you know, they don't combust on the, on the ground, neither do, uh, you know, the crops that were planted, you know, on the valleys or, or the lower slopes. And it seems an obvious question that when we seldom ask, what's happened to that bumper zone? Well, we know what it's been turned into. It's been turned into where I live, Rancho Bernardo, you know, Poway, uh, gated communities like Fairbanks Ranch. And indeed, right now, development is, is, is pushed way beyond the old agricultural glacier of San Diego County, deep into the, to the almost impenetrable backcountry, particularly with these, you know, very, very, you know, large homes that now claim ocean views from um, every peak in the rugged backcountry of Southern California. It's perhaps a naive question to ask, but why did we allow this to occur? That is, why did we create a megalopolis, largely suburban in density and character, ever growing outward, a city that seems infinite in its ambitions to grow? Why did we create this without preserving any of these, any of these orchards or fields that not only blessed Southern California with an almost Tuscan aspect of, 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 of beauty, cultivated land, you know, landscape, but also protected it from fire. And to understand that, and to understand, I mean, if you're an Aristotelian, you know, there's several different categories of causality. If you want to understand the effective cause of these fires, you have to go all the way back to the end of the Second World War in Los Angeles. From the late 30s on, an absolutely stellar group of landscape art, modernist landscape architects, architects, New Deal planners have been doing what you probably describe as a protracted charrette on the future development of Los Angeles, something that became more urgent during the wartime boom and so many hundreds of thousands of people moved to the Los Angeles and San Diego areas. Their first manifesto, uh, I believe edited by Dykstra over, there's a Paul at UCLA named in his honor, it was called Preface to Master Plan. And it proposed a whole set of theses which were eventually incorporated in the, San, in the Los Angeles City Planning Commission's zoning ordinance for the San Fernando Valley. San Fernando Valley had, oh, I don't know, 180,200 people in it, if that many, but was still largely orchards or, or agriculture. But it was obvious to everybody that when the veterans came back from the Pacific and the war workers looked to cash in their overtime, people would want homes in the valley. What this plan, which was crafted by the chairman of the planning commission, Robert Alexander, uh, a colleague of the famous architect Richard Neutra, provided for, was the permanent preservation 
through downzoning of the kind that Oregon has made famous in the Willamette Valley. The permanent preservation of 40% of the agricultural area of the valley. Some would be utterly agriculture, some would be what people call urban, urban farms, a house and 10 acres. Alexander and the City Planning Commission's intention was not so much out of environmental concern. I doubt that even fire figured very much in it, because we're talking about the, the plain of the, the San Fernando Plain. But their idea was that the only way really to create an efficient system of, of, of providing homes that would preserve Los Angeles's large historical investments in mass transit, the only way to reduce the cost of providing infrastructure to people had to be some alternative to what arose in the 1920s when developers played leapfrog. Always cheaper not to build right at the edge, go a little bit further out. Agricultural land is cheaper, convert it, sell it on the market. So the city grows in a rapid patchwork, unplanned way, all the time increasing the cost of providing infrastructures, at the same time undermining any system of mass transit because population densities is too low, it's not clustered. The Alexander plan would have solved that problem, would have concentrated population in a set of small cities or, or large villages. This is kind of the, the new urbanism of Amplitur before it, it actually uh, existed. It would achieve a kind of virtuous circle. The iconic landscape of Southern California was preserved at least 40% of it. There was still the buffer zones between wild areas and the cities. And what you would have would not be, you know, huge towering European-like residential blocks, but the kind of media density mixed development that has now become uh, so popular, I guess, everywhere but in Southern California, the new urbanism. And enough population density that you could recapitalize and preserve Southern California, Los Angeles County's famous electric railroad uh, system. Even the early freeways, some of you may know, like the Hollywood Freeway, had strips for monorails down the middle. The Alexander Plan was unanimously endorsed, I think, or majority endorsed by the commission. And I, just before Bob Alexander died in the Bay Area about 10 years ago, I spent a day talking to him about it. And he talked about a lynch mob of real estate agents, landowners, and, of course, their greatest champion, the Los Angeles Times. You know, coming down to city council meetings with some decorated veteran of Saipan or Iwo Jima saying this hero needs a home. In fact, the plan would have provided for the construction of up to, I think, three or four hundred it would have provided homes for three or four hundred thousand people in the valley. But that wasn't the point. And within a few weeks, and I went back and read the newspaper headlines, the city council backed down and basically tore up this plan. Over the ensuing 60 years, with, a, with few exceptions, uh, mainly in places like certain parts of 
uh, Ventura Valley, uh, Ventura County and the, uh, the Santa Clara uh, Valley of that region, uh, all efforts to adopt this kind of zoning, it would preserve agriculture, would it preserve uh, a buffer between you know, suburbs and, and wild areas has been beaten down. After the 2003 Cedar Fire in San Diego County not only destroyed 2,200 homes, but uh, 12 or 14 people were actually trapped uh, in their isolated homes in the canyon near, near the Barona Indian Reservation and were burnt to death trying to escape. After that tragedy, people thought that there was some opportunity to maybe adopt some modest, sensible rules for development in the backcountry. Remember now that most of the battle over what had been the agricultural belt has been lost and it's been developed. We're talking now about the really wild backcountry. Manzanita, chaparral, uh, pine and fir forests that are, that are dying of drought and bark beetle uh, infestation. And their proposal, very similar to the famous Willamette Valley uh, ordinance, which has been adopted in other parts of the country, is simply to downzone it. You know, one home per 88 acres, one home 400 acres. And it was a very unique and pleasing coalition of environmental groups and my grassroots, the good old boys, the traditional people who lived in eastern San Diego County and didn't want to see their uh, their way of life transformed, who didn't want to lose the rural character of it, who did not want espresso stands next to the biker bar on Highway 90 uh, 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 4 in, in Barrett Junction, people like that, they were soon opposed by an overwhelming opposition, outspending them something like 40 to 1. That said that it consisted of small farmers, the Farm Bureau of San Diego County, uh, in fact, when you looked at the campaign contributions, virtually all the money came from the very large-scale developers who totally dominate the political life of both San Diego City and San Diego County. Uh, famous names. Uh, the real history of San Diego since the war has far more to do with people like Ernest Hahn or, or the uh, parties or developers like the McMillans or, or Doug Manchester and people like that. They are the, actually the, the, the great men of this era. It's a bit like the late 19th century when the West was dominated by its booster developer, uh, uh, Robert Behrens. Well, that's still San Diego, perhaps even to a greater extent than Orange County for reasons uh, I can explain in the questions. So the so-called rural land proposition was crushed and, and voted down leaving the gateways open to further development in the backcountry. Uh, the inflexible principle of fire rebuilding in Southern California, in California as a whole, and perhaps now in most of the West, is that catastrophic fires that destroy homes and take lives encourage rather than discourage more development. Just look at what's happened on the Malibu coast after every big fire. Fifty-six fire, half the Bohemians in Malibu. It used to be a place where 
broken down screenwriters and aircraft, aerospace engineers could live. They left. They sold out. The houses grew larger, and they enlarge every time they're rebuilt. Uh, a very famous example of this well studied are the Oakland Hills and North Berkeley Hills after the 91 fire. The surface area of the houses that burned in an area which would also burn in 1921 and will burn again in another generation are larger than the ones before. Fire destruction provides the opportunity to manipulate and change land use, to build bigger, to push out more, uh, more homes. So it's almost a certitude that the legacy of this fire will be not controlled development, but probably more unrestrained development. The eventual, the culmination of this may in fact be that such great fires become less likely. There's uh, a study that the USGS uh, released done by the lead researchers with the University of Wisconsin. I'm sure some of you know about it. They released it in, in June or July. Basically what they did is they took the 2000 census data and looked at all the new homes built in the United States since 1990, 1990 to 2000. Okay? And then they used sophisticated GIS to see where these homes were. So, for instance, two-thirds of the about million homes built in California in that decade were built on what uh, the term that's become, I think, popularized in the recent week, the wildland urban interface, you know, adjacent to areas of, of vegetation or forest where combustion is an essential part, an integral part of the metabolism of, of the landscape. But what this study also showed is once you get to a certain density of housing, in a nonlinear fashion, uh, fire frequency suddenly declines. The point being that Southern California seems to be in the course of solving its fire problem simply by burning up all the available fuel, then paving over the ashes, exotic vegetation and grasses, uh, as John Keeling at UCLA will argue very eloquently, often replace coastal sage scrub or even chaparral, which I've always assumed you know, was indestructible. At some point of overbuilding, of suburbanization, when places like the Turkey Inn and Ramona, you know, our Starbucks and were formerly remote, you know, ranches are now, you know, cineplexes and malls, at a certain point, we won't have as many fires. A, a Pyrrhic victory under na over nature, which assumes also, of course, a profligacy of water and energy uh, that looks perhaps dubious over the future. But that, in fact, is the real trend of things. In San Diego County, the Board of Supervisors have already, two of them have already told the press that they don't think there's a chance that the county will even recreate the fire department. San Diego County is the only big county, urbanized county in California, doesn't have a county fire department for its unincorporated areas. It abolished it during the tax revolt in the 70s. The county grand jury after the 2003 fire, the principal recommendation was to rebuild, recreate the county fire department and adequately staff it. Although San Diego City 
is notorious for understaffing even the city fire department. And our previous fire chief, Chief Chapman, resigned in 2005 in disgust because he crusaded so long for adequate staffing and resources, failed to uh, supply them. San Diego relies on volunteer fire departments beefed up by guys who drive all the people who drive all the way down from Nevada to die fighting our, our, our bank country fires. Uh, that was the talk uh, given by uh, Mike Davis, historian at UC Irvine and winner of the Lanan Literary Prize for $150,000 this past week. Uh, this is Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Uh, he also mentioned uh, the controversy over the chancellor. Uh, LA City Beat uh, alternative paper has published uh, uh, some of the 450 pages or 430 pages of emails and uh, documents that have been sent to the letters that have been sent to the chancellor about the um, controversy uh, with the majority actually supporting Chemerinsky, but 99 of the pages uh, of the emails were actually supporting um, what he did, what Drake did initially in firing Chemerinsky, which uh, decision he rescinded later. Also, the early times reported that uh, Donald Bren, who funded the law school, uh, has in his contract the ability to intervene in the choice of a dean, although it's unclear if he actually did that. Uh, we also will be, uh, some announcements, uh, Seymour Hirsch, the journalist who exposed the Milai massacre and the Abu Ghraib um, uh, abuse, uh, will be speaking on campus at 7.30 tomorrow night at the HIB Humanities Instructional Building 100, uh, the site of the usual film fest and film showings at UC Irvine, which is next to the uh, student center. HIB 100, 7.30 tomorrow, Seymour Hirsch. And then on Thursday, the UCI Langston Library is hosting a Cuban uh, exhibit event, and that will, uh, on Thursday night at 5.30, and that's um, a Cuba partnership event, uh, talking about UC's uh, partnership with academics uh, doing research on Cuba. Uh, this is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Thank you. Thanks for listening.